Hello, welcome to the Devil's Ball. My name is Nathaniel. This is the podcast where we talk about uh, horror films through positive attitudes and constructive analysis. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Samuel Numenay. Hey, pleasure to be here. Oh, yes, Sam is here. He's now officially my co-host as of last episode. Yay. And uh, so this month, uh, our theme is Mick Garris Appreciation Month. Uh, we're talking about uh, highly underrated filmmaker Mick Garris, uh, predominantly famous for television and Stephen King adaptations, both of which our film tonight is. Um, we're doing Stephen King's The Shining. Uh, one of my favorites, if not my favorite Mick Garris project ever. Um, and uh, we're hopefully, we, we by now, there's a video up kind of giving up, giving everybody insight into who Mick Garris is so we could, don't have to necessarily go over that. Um, Man, I'm always very, glad to talk about more Mick Garris. But, yeah. Absolutely. Well, we'll get into that, yeah. I think, as we go on for the film. Exactly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so this movie, uh, for me personally, I think there's a, there's a lot here for me that affects me very personally uh, and very, very um, – which we'll get into. Um but uh, Sam's got the vital stats for us, so why don't we just get started with that, Sam? All right, so The Shining, we're going to call it a readaptation because I don't. it's not a remake. They never thought it not, was going to be a remake. I mean, It's not a remake. No. Yeah. It uh, aired April 27th, April 28th, and May 1st of 1997, a uh, budget of $21 million. Uh, it aired in 1.33 to 1 aspect ratio on TV, but they also um, had it for 1.78 to 1 for the DVD, so the widescreen format for DVD, but full frame for television, because at the time nobody really had widescreen TVs. Right. Uh, had a budget to $21 million. Uh, stars, of course, uh, Stephen Weber from uh, Wings, Rebecca De Mornay from The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, uh, Melvin Van Peebles from uh, the great director of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and yep. The Watermelon Man. Uh, a young Cortland Mead who you may have seen in um, Hellraiser 4 or um, the Little Rascals TV movie. And, uh, More than likely the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's pretty much what I got here. Yep. Oh, well, you forgot Pat Hingle. Yep, Pat and... Hingle. And uh, Elliot Gould both yes. also have uh, really have uh, very very great small roles. Uh, so my question to you is this, Sam: mm-hmm. Do you want to start? Do you want to start with the small stuff and work our way up, or do you want to just get the big stuff out of the way and then we can talk about minutia? What do you think? Uh, let's go big. Let's let's go with the let's big stuff, big. and then we can work on the minutia later. Okay. Well, then, uh, if you don't mind, I'm mm-hmm. probably gonna like take over for like a few minutes because, uh, uh, like I said, I have a very very personal feeling about this movie, very personal connection. And that is primarily that um, Stephen Weber's performance as Jack Torrance in this particular film uh, really connects with me because it reminds me very much of myself like uh, just a few years ago where everything was sort of a a nightmare for me. And um, I mean, right down to I even have my like my own version of like breaking Danny's arm, like bad things going on. and the reason why I want to bring this up is because it directly affects, because I watched the audio commentary, and I'm sure you did too. Yeah. And um, one of the things they keep saying on the audio commentary is it's, it's a metaphor for alcoholism. Right. It's, uh, and I'm like, no, it's not. The alcoholism is the metaphor. Right. Um, I, I feel like the alcoholism is the metaphor for what's really going on with Jack, which is a whole bunch of deep-seated psychological issues. And, that, and so a lot of what he's going through at the start of this film 
makes me feel makes me reminded uh, reminds me of what happened what I was like then which was uh, deeply unsatisfied professionally um, uh, I creatively unfulfilled and like even Mick Garris says in the audio commentary he refers to Jack being a writer who doesn't write yeah. and I was I was that um, I was that guy uh, deep uh, deep sense of, of self hatred deep sense of guilt uh, and uh, ostracized by a lot of people and generally feeling like uh, the whole world was against me. Right. And I think that that is very much what, what Jack is going through. Um, now, of course, the difference between myself and Jack is, and I was drinking heavily during this period, but uh, what happened was I started to realize after everything went completely down the tubes, I started thinking about term in terms of not so much like the, uh, like Jack says in the, in the show, he's like, I'm not myself when I drink. And I'm like, no bullshit. Yeah. You're, you're exactly who you are when you drink. And, um, and so, uh, when I was going through all of that, I, there were some people being like, you need to quit, you know, you need to quit drinking. The drinking is a problem. And I'm like, actually, I don't think it's the drinking. That's the problem. I think I'm the problem. And what I ended up doing was, well, that, was really well that's kind final. of that's kind of why i never really you know messed with alcohol much myself because I, I i have these you know underlying problems that i i just kind of know in the back of my head would just exas- be exacerbated by drinking and turn me into a way worse person so right go on no but the um yeah so this is i mean obviously this is gonna be a fun episode this is a fun <laughs> story this this story actually ends in a very positive way so um but you got to realize the point uh to my point is that uh I realized at that time that I had depression and anxiety in a, in a way that I had never actually admitted to myself at all and uh, admitted to myself that I was so unhappy with so many aspects of my life that I said, well, I got to make changes on that and I have to own that. I have to make, make myself carry this better. And that's one of the things that Jack is so inter- unbelievably bad at. Right in this show, like, you know, uh, you know, he hurt, he hurt somebody, he hurt somebody he loved. And, but again, he, he can't accept that that's his fault. Right. He can't carry that. He accepts, he says that that's, you know, or that he's rather that he's like, well, all of this stuff is my fault, but it was all because I was drinking. I quit drinking. I'm all better now. Right. And I'm like, well, no, you never actually looked at any of your problems. You never looked at any of what, what happened. Uh, and so, therefore, you're never going to get any better. Yeah. You took and, you took away your self medication without actually dealing with the underlying illness. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and I mean, I still and I still drink on occasion. I, I enjoy. I probably, uh, but the difference is that now because my life is is so much better. Um, you know, I I moved away. I, I like I said, I dealt with my problems. I I took ownership of them. I took, uh, and now I I understand them. I live with right. them. I've learned how to figure all that out. And uh, so now when I actually drink, it's like I'm actually like happy and having a good time. Right. Like it's it's like I can. Right. And uh, I can watch a shitty movie or I can watch The Shining and have a few drinks and be like, you you know, having fun and enjoying myself. It's not a self-punishment. It's not a a, a way to hide how miserable I am because I'm not miserable anymore. Uh, I'm now with a a wonderful partner that actually understands me and I can talk to about how I feel what's what's going on with me and and even then uh, now i feel safer now just generally admitting even problems i didn't even know i had i'm now confronting 
um, because of her right. and because I'm in a better place. But the my point is is that Jack, there's the and how Stephen Weber plays him, uh, it is so very deep. I think in in a way that Nicholson's could never be. Right. Um, and it, it is that concept of back when I was like that, when I had all these horrible negative feelings, often not, they were, they were externalized or rather internalized from external sources. I'm like, uh, work is the problem. Right. Uh, you know, they don't see how great I am. Uh, I'm not successful at writing because someone else is distracting me. Uh, you know, it's all their fault. And then after, after, after stuff went bad and I did some stuff that I, that I still carry with me every single day and I hate, I, I, they keep me up awake at night. Um, there was a point of, well, why can't people get over this? Right. You know, and eventually I came to the realization they shouldn't get over it and I shouldn't get over it. You, you keep moving on with that. I'm not going to get on what those are, but, but my, my point is, is that, you know, he, you know, he beat up James, uh, Metallica frontman James Hetfield. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was Hatfield, James Hatfield, right. but, uh, but he, I mean, he beat him up when he wasn't drinking. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it, and, um, but it all, uh, all throughout this, this film, uh, Jack keeps saying stuff like, first of all, as, as the Overlook is working on him, he's like, uh, I have friends here, Wendy, like, again, it's people who are supporting him. Right. So he thinks they're supporting him. Uh, you know, I'm important here. I'm important to the Overlook. I'm successful. But even throughout, he also mentions stuff like, um, he says at least twice, he kind of mentions that his, his play isn't very good. Right. You know, and it's like, so I keep looking at it as being like, okay, here's Jack Torrance in a nutshell. He's one thing we don't have in common. Mm-hmm. Jack Torrance is a child, has an abusive father, Obviously, probably not a very educated man, despite being voiced by Miguel Ferra. Right. In oh, the uh, the wonderful Miguel. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The late Miguel. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, but he basically Jack has this abusive father. Grows up. He's gonna do everything he can to not be his father. Mm-hmm. He gets educated to become a teacher to the point where he's teaching at a private school. Right. And he fucks that up. Yeah. Uh, he he meets this woman Wendy, beautiful beautiful woman. He falls in love with her. But he's going to be a better husband to her than his father was. Right. Uh, he has a kid. I'm going to be a better father than than my father was. Except for the fact that he never really understands his deep-seated depression, his deep-seated self-loathing, right. his, deep, his deep-seated uh, uh, inferiority complex. And so ultimately, it's a self-revealing prophecy. He becomes a failure at everything he does. Right. And, ter- and, and turns directly into his father because, you know, he doesn't – want to or is incapable of doing the work to, you know, work past that. Right, right. All he does is say, well, I quit drinking, right. so now I'm better. Yeah. And um, so that's that's where I'm coming from, like, is that this movie, like, this really does connect with me in a very, very personal level right. in the sense that I, I, I think I just really understand and relate to him. Uh, luckily, I don't relate to his, the ending of right. him. Like, uh, like I actually did get better. In fact, I was remember I was watched it. I watched it with Lori, my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene in the lobby where he's talking to, to Wendy, Rebecca De Mornay, and they have that fight. And then it ends with him like crying and saying like, I never meant to hurt Danny. Right. And I remember looking at, at Lori and saying, this conversation probably should have happened six months ago. Yeah. Uh, certainly, you know, uh, certainly before they go to move off the grid, basically, you know? Right. Right. 
Uh, but the, but my point was that like you know, that's sort of a breakthrough. But obviously the hotel every single Jack time Jack starts to get himself together, they kick his legs out from underneath him. Right. But um, which isn't his fault. Um, well, I mean it is in the sense that it's these unresolved issues he yeah. never dealt with. Um, and so the difference there is that I, I learned to deal with them. I learned to live with them. Right. And so, um, but I do feel that, that connection to him. Uh, so that sort of like personal thing, and that's well, probably what I'm going to. Yeah. I, and I was wondering, if, I mean, I, I took away a kind of similar thing from it. Um, you know, I don't want to be redundant and go over everything the same, but my take on it, especially on this watch through. And when I was reading the book, you know, earlier, um, not for this podcast, but the last time I read it, you yeah. Know, the thing, the thing that I took away from it is, is he's just like this, you know, unending fountain of, you know, call it fragile masculinity, call it toxic mm. masculinity, call it you absolutely self-imposed rage, and you know, the thing yeah. that the thing that connects with me about it is, you know, I, I'm pretty open about my anxiety and my depression problems, but I never talk about my very, very deep-seated anger problems. Sure, sure. And you know, it's the, it's the werewolf in the back of my head always trying to get out. You know, the, mm-hmm. as a as a child, you know, I got pretty out of control when I would get angry, and you know, now it's to the point where if I start getting angry, I need to disengage entirely. Yeah. Um. And you know, so, and you know, it's it's weird because in the middle when he starts to lose his shit, and this isn't the Kubrick version as well, but it's it's played much better here because the characters are are much deeper. Um, I like to think of the Kubrick version of like him making a Bosch painting, and the Garrick version of you know doing a Shakespeare play. Yeah, you know Kubrick is is setting this beautiful tone and this 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 story this visual story, but he leaves he leaves the he leaves the emotional details a lot of it out of it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's yeah. where I think this one shines above it, so to speak. Yeah, I didn't realize I just backed myself into that pun, but <laughs> it shines yeah, above yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, well, I think, but yeah, it's like this whole you know society is just you know, especially if you're like a white middle aged guy, you know, you've spent your whole life you know internalizing your own anger, whether it's right. rightfully or wrongfully placed. Most of the time, it's wrongfully, and you definitely take it out wrongfully on people who don't deserve it. Right. Um, you know, back when I had serious anger problems, when I would get to a point where I needed to erupt, I didn't necessarily erupt at the people who deserved it. I, I erupted at the people who were closest to me, the ones that couldn't get away, the ones, you right. know, the family members that have to be your family afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind and of similar I, takeaway that I, that I took from it. Well, I think, you know? well, I think all, all of that comes from the same place. Right. It comes from the idea of, like, that Jack, and even myself years ago, before I actually got my shit together, was was that idea of, like, uh, that I'm fine. Right. It's everybody else's the problem. Yeah, and and so, but I'm cool. Everybody that, else is the assholes. Yeah, all the all that unresolved issues, all right. those unresolved issues, ultimately do end up in anger, and frustration, and and they end up they can end up in help self harm. They can end up in right. in attacking people. Um, but I mean, again, like the idea is that everything. I mean, Jack Jack gets mad at uh, Uncle Al, right? For for getting him the gig, yeah, uh, you know, for for being richer than him, right. uh, yeah, you can definitely get... tell he's very resentful for Uncle Al for getting him the gig because you know it was he helped him out and he didn't yeah. want to admit that he needed help, right? And that's that's the metaphor, the entire right. metaphor for Jack. Yeah, you know, Jack Jack doesn't want to ask for help. Jack doesn't. I mean, he's in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we still see him mock that, right? Um, and you we know, don't see him speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. We just see him, you know, introduce himself. 
with like a eye roll. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and 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 again, like you know, the Overlook when it starts working on him. I mean, there's that that great scene where uh, uh, Horace Derwin mm-hmm. says, uh, "Don't worry, Jack. You know, you'll find another job maybe at a car wash right. or a gas station." You know, that's what your wife and kid want, right? Right. They want you to be. They want you to be humbled. They're they're holding you back. Yeah. And again, it's Jack being unable to realize that he's like, well, actually, the problem is, I'm not dealing with who I am because it's right. weak. Yeah. It, it's. It, it, I can't admit that. It really comes across in this, like especially with Cortland Mead as uh, Danny. You know. Yeah. He's terrified of Jack. Mm-hmm. At but. He loves the fuck out of Jack. He loves the fuck out of Jack. And you can see it in different yeah. scenes. And, you know, I don't know why he stopped acting. Um, you know, just he grew out of it or he got hit that awkward teen stage and never got work again. But he doesn't he he's still a lot he, since then, has he? Uh, he's done some stuff. He, uh, I looked him up. Uh, Lori actually asked if uh, if he ever grew into his mouth, which I thought yeah. was kind of – And I was like, well, Lori. Yeah, that's I looked him up. I found photos look. of him. Yeah. I found photos of him. He looks. He does look pretty good. He's a he's a relatively handsome guy. I mean, shit. I but, wish I looked that good when I was his age, you know. But yeah, <laughs> it's hard. Right. It's hard to. But yeah. But yeah, he um. Uh, but he did. He does still work. I, I didn't okay, write good. down what he did, but he does occasionally. I think his last project was 2010, something like yeah. that. Because they were talking about him a lot behind in the doc in the commentary, you know, where he was. Yes. That was him. You know, it wasn't like he was just a trained monkey. You know, right. his wise. He he knew the story he knew what he wanted to do he was excited to do it he wasn't scared by it and he brought a lot of character to that character that i wasn't expecting no no and he's he's very very good i do remember back in high school uh, of a girl and when it aired Mm -hmm. there was a girl i sat next to in like history class or something melissa and she kept uh doing like the chipmunk thing like putting her teeth up (laughs) right and uh, just like pictures in a book and i was Uh, like yeah and i'm like and I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, like, yeah, I get it. He's kind of got that big mouth thing going on, but yeah. Um, when but it, I think he actually when it started, a good, good I, I hadn't watched this in probably five years or so. I, I'd forgotten yeah. how good he was at it, so I started to yeah. worry that I was going to be like, oh, this is the annoying child actor that I have to sit with for four and a half hours. But no, he's great. It doesn't come that way. Yeah, he's he's really quite good. Um, but also, like, yeah, and and actually, that that segue could go into talking about Wendy, right? Um. Because when Lori and I were watching it, we were talking about, like, uh, Lori kept kind of going, shut up, Wendy. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, because she comes off as very naggy right. in this film. But she has every right to be. Yeah. Like, you know. and But there is that element, too, where I was sort of sitting with that and being like, why is why does Wendy come off as annoying? And it's because we see, like, we see the world through Jack. I was going to say, I think that was on purpose. Like the scene at the yeah. beginning when uh, he meets Danny and he's throwing him up in the air and she comes up like, don't drop don't... him. I'm like, what yeah. the hell? <laughs> right. The, what the hell, then, Wendy? Yeah, yeah. That was my reaction. I'm like, what the hell? Are you? I'm not going to drop him. And then I'm like, oh, this is what they want me to think right now. Yeah. You know? Like, right. Uh, exactly. And, and, and the idea that uh, that is something that he is projecting. Right that she won't forgive him, that she won't let him forget, right. that she'll keep reminding him of his colossal failure, right. of his terrible thing. And again, it's something I felt for a oh, long yeah. time where people were like, people won't let me forget these things I've done. And, think, uh, and I'm yeah, like, why, all, why won't they? We carry they? that around with us some way or another. I, mean, I still know yeah. people, you know, people that I hurt back in middle school that I still think about, like, oh, mm. you know, I'm right. the worst, you know? Right, right, right. But I mean, yeah, it's it's something that you learn to carry, and Jack never learned to carry. Right. Jack decided to be resentful about it, and um, but Wendy, 
uh, Lori actually had noted, and that, that was actually the main point of why I started talking about why Lori did. Lori noted very, very cleverly mm-hmm. um, that Rebecca De Mornay provides in her performance. Uh, Wendy is super jealous of Jack and his relationship with Danny. Um, yeah. Like, and that I think there's a little bit of that. Like, Wendy's like, well, he broke Danny's arm. Why does Danny still, like, love him so much? Why does Danny want to be right. with him? Right. And and why why doesn't he do that with me? And uh, and I had not, and I, think, I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, but you're right. She's right. You know? Yeah, and I think that um, if we go through, if we want to analyze Wendy, she's got a lot of the same problems as Jack does. Right. Uh, we do learn a little bit about her background: abusive mother. Right. Um, she did come <clears> from money, versus yeah. what Jack Jack clearly did not. Um, but I think that what we see is that what. What I and always she's get, a, she's I a painter of, that doesn't paint, where he's a writer who doesn't write. Although she does paint some, but you know, she draws. Yeah, yeah. she draws some fruit. Yeah, but uh, she draws good fruit. <laughs> paint um, good fruit, mommy. <laughs> yeah, but um, but yeah, my point is that I think like ultimately what I kind of took away from watching that relationship and the way Weber and Demorne played, I'm like, right. this two should have gotten divorced a while ago. Yeah, like they're not in a healthy right. relationship. Like none of them are doing but, either. Of the but other you can also papers. see, you know. And this this is one of the you know lesser thought about things that I like to to rate a horror movie by is um you know the setup of the horror movie can be boring it can be exciting it can be yeah. bad but I I think it really works when like I'm watching it I go you know I could just watch a show about these people just doing whatever totally and when when yeah. when things are working at the beginning when they first get to the overlook and everyone's excited to be there and stuff I could just watch a movie of them just walking around having a good day. Uh, yeah. Just the way they're all playing it is just is great. Before the darkness, you know, starts to creep back in. Yeah, and you know. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, uh, there's some wonderful scenes of them actually kind of working as a couple, right? And as a family. And he's and again, you know, he's just great with Jack. You know. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, Stephen Weber is is absolutely one hundred percent the MVP of this show. Mm-hmm. He's so good in it. Um, and uh, and he, it kind of bugs me that he didn't get an Emmy for this. He got a he got a Saturn Award. Oh, okay. for this, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The Shining, the Shining itself, the the miniseries uh, won two Emmys for makeup. I think wasn't it or something. One was makeup, and I think one of them was sound effects, right? Or digital, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, however, they did a, a thing called the Online Film and Television Association, and they swept that. Nice. Like, they, they won a ton of awards for that. Um, well, I wonder how much a, of that was. Because, you know, the way that people looked upon miniseries at the time on TV. It's very possible. Know? It's very possible. I mean, the show itself was was nominated as uh, for Outstanding Miniseries oh, that okay. year. Uh, it was nominated. It just didn't win. Right. I didn't look up what did. Um, but I'm assuming Mick Garris got robbed. Yeah. I um, was going to say, I'm working on that assumption as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, it did win some Emmys. Uh, so it was appreciated. Of course, it, it made a lot of money. It did, uh, it did really good ratings. Right. Um, my point was a, a bit to go back to the point of like Wendy, Wendy has all these unresolved issues she hasn't dealt with either. Right. And, um, I felt like however, she, I felt like she, um, married him to get away from something. Right. Uh, I think they both did. Yeah. That's why, that's my point is I right. feel like the two of them were like, we're going to, to fix our lives by being with this person. Right. And, uh, and, and then discovering that they kind of bring out the worst in each other in a lot of ways. Um, and then they had a kid, and then they kind of felt stuck. Right. Um, that's that's all, and that thing is that's all inferred. That's all from that's yeah. from the acting. Right. Um, and um, which I think is is fantastic. I mean, I think these these oh, are 
two of the richest miniseries characters I've ever seen. The the only thing I think there's two things I think that hold the stand back as a miniseries, and one is the name, or not the stand, the shining. Mm. One is the name, you know, yeah. and they're they're pretty upfront about that in in the commentary and the behind the scenes yeah. that they're not trying to compete with Kubrick. No, they're because they don't need to. Um, he, no. he did his own adaptation that was so far removed from the book that you don't even have to have that much overlap. No. Uh, other than the broad strokes of the plot. Um, the other thing is just the budget. I think, you know, being shot for TV, um, you know, using early CGI effects that weren't maybe yeah. as good as they could have been, you know, a couple of years down yeah. the line. Um, but you got to remember, like, you know, 1997, we're just starting to cross over into DVD, into... Yeah getting plasma TVs with higher resolution. They have to shoot a visually interesting uh, movie with, you know, all the color and, you know, cinematography that they want, um, which they use to great effect. But they also have to keep in mind that it's going to be on, you know, somebody's 25-inch Magnavox with, you know, sure. 425 lines of rent or 525 lines of resolution if they're not taping it onto a VHS cassette, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Um, so they did wonders with just that, that very small window that they had to work with, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, I mean, I think and for the most part, the effects work. Uh, it's just the, it's just the the CGI animals that I just like. Yes, did not work. yeah, the, the topiary animals. When, yeah, those are terrible. When it was the pup, the few shots where it's the puppets, it's great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, and I uh, and the way that they edited it, I mean, like Mick Harris actually talks about that during the uh, during the, in the commentary, but the the edits of like when Jack encounters them, right. and they don't move when he can see them, and he's like, okay, and uh, all of that scene is done extremely well right. to the point where I'm like, why wasn't it done that way when they're coming after Danny at the end of right. part two? Because uh, all you had to do was change it to be like we we know the animals are moving, and then just have a, a pushing camera shot in on Danny's back. And we know that was the that was the animals. I, I I think they felt they needed to pay it off, you know, bigger for part yeah. three. And you know, I I get it, but I, I don't think the effect ended up working very well. You know, no, I, I agree. And that's fine. I'm here to talk about the story more than the effects, anyways. You know, I don't. Yeah. I don't like being like, oh, you know, I just watch this for the CGI effects or the gore, or, you know. Right, right, right. I'm here for story. Uh, man. <laughs> right, and what? Well, and and uh, I I think if there if you were watching this for any other reason. Uh, you would be so be incredibly disappointed. I right. uh, uh, there's not that much action in this story, right? And that's part uh, of the reason I was disappointed when it came out in '97. You know, I just we just had our first my first apartment with my wife, and you know we got cable and we got it set up, and I'm like, oh, they're gonna play The Shining. That's like my favorite movie. Uh, and then you know, I think a lot of people had hit the same way. Like well, I'm expecting to see Kubrick's The Shining, and I don't know why I thought I was going to see that because I've already seen it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at, at first I really kind of wrote the, wrote the film off for years until I got it on DVD a few years later. And I'm like, this is actually pretty damn good. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Know. It, uh, it definitely stands up. And I think I like it more and more every time I see it too. I, I like, uh, I like Kubrick's the shining because I think it's a masterpiece of filmmaking. Mm. And I think this version of the shining is a masterpiece of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely, Kubrick took yeah. it visually as far as anyone could go, really, uh, with with most of his f big films. And yeah, but a lot of times it was at, at expense of the human drama. Yes, yeah, and very much so. Yeah. I think that's that's King's quote about this about Kubrick's was, uh, "I admire it the way you could admire a, a Ferrari with no engine." Right. 
Um, and, uh, and, and I don't want to get too much into comparing them because I think we're probably going to end up doing the Shining. Kubrick's The Shining, like in January. Right. We were talking yeah. le- talking roughly about doing uh, uh, snowstorm movies right. in, uh, in, in January, so I think that we'll, we'll probably end up touching it then. Uh, the only thing I would say that I do want to compare about, and I want to talk about this a little bit, mm-hmm. is uh, The Woman in 217 versus The Woman in 237. Right. And uh, this one is far superior. Definitely. In my opinion. Yeah. 217, uh, Cynthia Garris, uh, Mick Garris' wife, plays the woman in the bathtub right. in 217. Um, and it is still to date, I think, one of the scariest visuals I've ever encountered Yeah. Uh, in anything. Right. Uh, when she's just slowly looking out from behind the... Uh, with, uh, Ru- uh, with Ruby D's eyes. <laughs> Ruby D's eyes, yeah, that's interesting. But uh, but yeah, she's looking out the window, uh, looking out from behind the shower. And for anybody who doesn't know, they uh, used the contacts that they used for Ruby D in The Shining uh, for Cynthia Garris's eyes uh, in the two thirty two seventeen scene. Yeah, uh, Ruby Ruby D from uh, uh, The Stand, not right. The Shining. Yeah, you said the you said The Stand again. Okay, I'm terrible. Oh, you, at said, this. you said The Shining again. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and the S. Uh, <laughs> I think that's gonna get yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, I wrote about this in a class I just actually finished taking. Um, uh, it was about age in film. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I ended up writing about, um, and we had a, a section on horror film. Right. And the essay question that was sort of offered was, uh, talk about the use of elderly women or the aging female body as a mm-hmm. source of horror. Right. And I compared those two scenes. I was like, okay, Woman, woman in 237, where the, the horror of that scene really does come from the fact that she goes from being beautiful to hideous. Right. Yeah, he's making out and, with a pretty woman, and all of a sudden she's an old woman, and that, that's, yeah, that's and scary. It, it's that's scary. Whereas in this one, uh, you know, she's molesting a young child, and she's just a, she's just a, a young corpse, you know. Which is totally which is totally sidestepped. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's got the lipstick on. There was more than yeah. just strangling going right. on in that in that room. That but, was way um, darker and way scarier. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's TV, yeah. so you know. Yeah, uh, but I think that her uh, her makeup is fantastic. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think it's just an absolutely f- terrifying image. And I love the way that they end the scene, and then like later on, and go back, and then we have a quick smash cut of her, right? Being like, you know, we'll have tea, Danny. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck, right? Like, nope. Good God, nope. You gotta I, bring us back for one more hor- one more shot. I did my uh, Stephen Weber impression in that that scene because I'm like, nope, I don't see that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she, um, but yeah, I mean, like. Uh, and I talked about that, that the difference there is that in her, her the horror of the woman in 217 is predominantly um, because she's dead. Right. You know, she's a corpse versus uh, uh, old aging. Right. You know. And uh, uh, so, I mean, I, I think that scene is absolutely fantastic. It's probably my favorite in the entire uh, miniseries. And like I said, it's probably one of the most frightening visuals I think I've ever seen in anything. Um. So, uh, that's a really great, uh, really, really great scene. And I guess what, from there we can talk about some of the minor roles. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, first, you know, Melvin Ben Peebles is just yes. amazing as uh, yeah. in his role. It's just, I love the Scatman Crothers uh, version, but this one's, sure. again, this one's just far more fleshed out, far more realistic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's he's just absolutely fantastic in right. it. Um, and his connection to uh, to to Danny, and uh, also uh, uh, Pat Engel 
Yeah. Uh, uh, isn't in it much, but um, he's obviously he's Commissioner Gordon. Right. In the he, Batman films. He's killing it in, as, like, you know, one of Stephen King's uh, towny stock characters, basically, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny, actually, that's something I was thinking about, because that's another reason why this, this particular story resonates with me, is I've spent the last, like, better part of the last 20 years working in, in hotels. Right. And what impressed me, I'm almost certain Stephen King never ever worked in one. No. But what interests me about uh, both uh, Melvin Man Peebles and Pat Hingle's performances is that, and uh, then, of course, uh, Elliot Gould as, as Ullman. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, yeah, he's great. It's one scene. And um, and one of the things I, I loved in when I was thinking about the whole, like, uh, Jack's personal problems, I, I find it amazing that Ullman is absolutely right about it. Right. Like, Ullman's like, and Jack's like, well, we've, you know, I'm not, an al- I, I'm an alcoholic, but I don't drink anymore. And then Ullman's like, I don't give a shit. Right. Um, I, you're an unstable figure. Right. Like, he sizes him up he's, perfectly. He's, 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 like, he's right about it, but he's kind of a dick about it. But, you know. Well, even then, I th- one of the things that works for me about that scene mm-hmm. is actually, as Jack tells him right. the story, right. I feel like Omen actually softens a little bit as that scene goes on. Yeah. Um, and that there's a, there's actually like, Omen's kind of a dick, but I think that he actually sort of is like, I actually kind of feel some sympathy for you. Right. I hope, I hope you get your shit together. Right. Like, um, people, I guess you know, people said that he, Elliot Gould was really stiff in that scene, but I'm like, that's pretty sure that was as intended. Yes. You know, he just has his big stick up his butt. That's just the kind of guy he is. He, yes. He needs the trains to run on time and he's the guy at the end of the day who's responsible for that and you know right. you could tell he takes it way too seriously you know yeah well i think and that's what that was to my point is that having worked in in host, in hotels for like 20 years um these people are perfect representations of the type of people you meet working in hotels right um Ullman in particular uh uh i've always said that like hospitality attracts like one of three types of people mm-hmm. and it's either usually sociopaths <laughs> i'm not kidding right um uh, uh, regular earth, down to earth people who tend to uh, burn out or, or try to lay off steam, right. or just like helpless people who can't do anything else, which was me. Um, but uh, it, in many experiences, when I've dealt with hotel managers, and I've never worked for a place like the Overlook, right? I've never worked for anything that big. Never worked for a resort hotel. Um, it's the only type I haven't worked for. I've worked for everything from boutique hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 300 room, uh, hotels, uh, down to like, you know, the, uh, comfort inns, you know, by, by the airport. Um, and again, I bounced around from all of those because I never felt particularly comfortable with any of it. And hopefully I'll never have to go back to do it again because I I really do hate working in hospitality. But, uh, what impressed me was that first of all, Ullman is, is definitely a type of person you'd run into that runs a hotel. Right. Um, and as you said, this one takes it way too seriously. And that's or, probably why he, you know, got to the position he was, you know, just because that's yeah. the kind of jet thing that's needed, especially in a hotel that is an active and chaotic force, apparently, you know. Yeah. He's going to need well, I mean, and even a then, firm hand on the wheel, you know. Even then, though, it seems like Omen is not even real, is completely unaware of that. Right. Versus, versus of course, obviously, Halloran is aware right. that the Overlook is a problem. And there's enough, there's a, just like a, a blink and you miss it moment of Pat Hingle kind of being like, maybe he does know right. a nope, little bit no anyway. Ghosts here. No ghosts, yep. not in the overlook. You know, yeah, Jack says, any ghosts? Right. And Pat Hingle actually kind of goes He answered way too ghosts. quickly, yeah. It's like. Well, actually, he doesn't, though. He actually has a pause first. Right. He says, uh, what? Yeah. 
you know, yeah, he does that. Jack he does that I buy time. Uh, what? Yeah, and then Jack yeah. says, any ghosts? You said every hotel has its scandals right. and its rats. Does it have any ghosts? And no ghosts. <laughs> Not in the overlook. Right. Let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's let's go. Let's let's go. Let's get out of here. Uh, so I think there's a little bit that like Pat Hingle. It's kind of weird because you know the if you really think about the layout of the hotel in the film, you know the creepy gothic basement is probably the the least creepy part of the hotel uh, as the film goes on. It can be, yeah. yeah. I mean, at the very end yeah. when the ghosts are there, you know, trying to force his hand, you know, uh, it's a little different. But most of the time, the the basement's kind of a safe place from ghosts, if not, you know. Psychic influence is still there, but you know. Well, I mean, Jack Jack starts spending a lot of time down there, getting getting involved with the papers and stuff. Um, so I mean, you could, and then the boiler room is so integral right. to the to the plot that um, you could make an argument that it's a pretty nasty place down there. Uh, I, I think that's just it, where all the negative psychic energy is, but like not really the ghosts and the you know the attacks. Well. Right, you know? If you wanted to go intellectual and you want to be like, okay, let's talk about like symbolic, right, uh, totemic stuff. I mean, the the papers are all down there, right? Yeah, the, the, the hotels, the hotels history it's the, is it's down the, there. It's the hotel subconscious in the basement, you know. Yeah, yeah. The id is running around insane up up top. <laughs> yes, yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, but again, to my point though, like Pat Hingle's uh, maintenance guy head of maintenance is very much similar to most of the guys I've worked for worked with in maintenance right. that I've met. Uh, very, very down to earth. And they generally don't have anything nice to say about management. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the only thing I would say is that Pat Hingle, like uh, I've never met an engineer. Usually the nowadays are called engineers right. uh, in, in hotels. They're not head of maintenance. It's usually head engineer. And then maintenance is the department right. that they run. Uh, but with this, uh, they're usually pretty dirty. Yeah. And Pettingle's awfully clean, uh, but well, I um, think I think all the work was done for the season too. So you know, maybe that's true. That's true. He is just there to show Jack around. I so mean, maybe he didn't do the the head chef usually doesn't look that nice either. But he's leaving in five minutes. You know. Yeah. Well, that was that was that day. Right. Yeah. I meant when Jack's with him in the very opening scene. Oh yeah. I was like, right. why isn't yeah. why isn't he covered in like why isn't he covered in grease or right. something? Because he should be. Um, but you could be right then, even still, maybe it's like, well, most of the work's done for the season. Or sometimes the head engineer just doesn't actually do that much actual work. Right. Uh, they do a lot of paperwork, a lot of Yeah, I'm not uh, sure how much how much physical labor Pat Hingle would be able to do as, as far as that goes. You know? Yeah. You could turn yeah. the valves, definitely, you know, yeah. let the steam out the boiler. But, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, The uh, but actually the thing is that, once again, uh, uh, Halloran is the cook is another uh, character that – Definitely seems to come right out of hotel work, though. Right. Like, and again, same same idea that they're both workman jobs. I've only worked for Hunt Hotel where mm-hmm. the head the head cook was actually a chef. a chef, right? Yeah, and he was an asshole. Um, but the um, usually the head cook or whatever mm-hmm. uh, is usually a pretty down to earth guy who, again, doesn't usually particularly like management, right? And uh, and are generally very down to earth. Um, and I feel like both those characters, I feel like if I feel like if you could see them in the summer, there's probably like them and some of their employees are like smoking cigarettes right out during back. break times yeah. out back, you know, and talking about how much they hate the guests, <laughs> exactly. um, which uh, I don't want to disillusion anybody listening, but that's generally what the hotel staff are doing. Right. Um, they don't like you, um, but uh, and, and they do. I've always said that the the. Two things you got to know about hospitality if you want to stay, if you're staying in hotels is A, 
uh, a good guest is a quiet guest. Yeah. And uh, so if you have a problem, we'll solve it. But like, uh, we prefer you to be fine. And <laughs> exactly. so, and and to that point, I've always said that if you actually have a problem at a hotel, come at come to the people very very calmly, and they'll do everything they can to fix it for you because they want you to shut up. Right. And uh, so. I, there's this idea that like hotel workers like you know say no on purpose no. or don't want to hurt you know don't want right. to bother people. I'm like no no no, we want you to be happy so you we, shut up. We get paid the same whether we're you have no problems or whether you have ten. So we'd rather you have less problems and, and leave us exactly. alone. Exactly, <laughs> <clears throat> exactly, it's exactly it. Um, but yeah, uh, so I mean that that was something that actually always impressed me. Plus also the the hotel is actually quite lovely. Oh yeah, I I, I love hotels. Mm-hmm. I just don't like the people that stay in them. Right. Um, but, uh, I love, I love the hotel aspect and I used to work overnights and so it would be nice and quiet and do walks around in the hotel and they're, they're, they're wonderful places to hang out, right. um, late at night when there's no one around. It's usually very comfortable. Um, I've never worked for one that's haunted, well, but I don't know if I believe that or in ghosts anyway. Right. So yeah, I'm not. I'm not so, sure where I stand on that on that either. But you know, I, I do yeah. feel that certain places have a have a have a feeling. You know, make yeah. you feel a certain way. Whether that's because of ghosts, psychic energy, or just you know the the peculiarities of the way humans see the world. Who knows? You know. Right. Right. But yeah. Um, let me see. What else did I want to kind of talk about? Um, what do you got on your notes? Uh, we did the, they did a visual, uh, visual manifesto for this film where they wanted to, um, yep. they, they wanted to go with sweeping cameras, moving cameras to kind of give the hotel itself a feeling of life, uh, which, yep. you know, which I thought was a great, great choice. Um, yeah. and the way they played around with color at different points in the movie, you know, um, as, as the snow starts to fall, the color kind of drains out of the place. Yeah. Um, when there's the flashbacks, you know, well, the flashbacks are visions to the 1920s or whatever. There's just this vibrant color, um, yep. you know, so they really, you know, had a handle all the way through on how they shot this thing, how they wanted it to be seen and to be watched. Yeah. Um, which, you know, props to them, because like I said, working on a miniseries in the mid nineties for $21 million is no yeah. easy feat to get something that looks, you know, this professional, this, and I shouldn't say professional. It's going to be professional. I mean, it's right. This good, you know, it, I think it was a step above, you know, the stuff you see on, saw on TV at the time, uh, even, and it helped push the format, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially yeah. like the way later and it's it, sure. It's kind of obvious. Like when he goes to the bar and gets his quote unquote first drink, you know, yeah. right at the end, where all the bottles are lit up with you know their own lights and it just looks yeah you know like a, you you could shoot a tequila commercial right there I mean you know oh, yeah, or whatever yeah. Jack Daniels because that's what he drank yeah um so they really put a lot of thought and care into into how they presented this world uh, yeah that, I that was a joke liked. that was a joke I made when I was watching it with Lori I was like mm-hmm. really like the ghosts can probably conjure up any alcohol right right Jack Daniels yeah I mean like. But that seemed to be uh, his uh, his drink because he said, you know, it's my, fate, yeah. it's my fate to drink whiskey straight or whatever he said. Yeah. I'm a poet my and fate's... I don't even know it. <laughs> yeah. Not much of a playwright. Right, right yeah. Yeah, that's the next line. Um, that, whole, but yeah. that whole scene um, where they're finally, you know, tipping him all the way over yeah. and getting him off the rails, that was a really, really effective scene. 
Yes. There's even that little bit in the middle of like, you know, because this whole time Jack thinks the hotel wants him. Yes. The hotel wants Danny. Right. And I don't think it's ever been so obvious as in this one. You know, the motivations of the hotel are very clear in this. Think um, so? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because you know, from the start, you know, they're like, oh, we need this kid to, you know, kind of make things a little better, get a little more power for ourselves. Sure. But at that scene where they're, you know, about to ply him without, where they're plying with him with alcohol and sending him to the ballroom where the ball is to dance around an empty ballroom, mm-hmm. you know, he even takes him and he's like, well, what if they just leave and I stay? Yeah. You know, he's it's it's the last temptation of Jack right there. Yeah. And, you know, sadly he failed. Yes. Because, again, he couldn't realize that this isn't about him. No. You're the conduit, maybe. You're the easy mark. You're the, the, yeah. the knob we can turn the fastest, but you're not yeah. the reason for the season, buddy, you know? Yeah. Well, I like the uh, the subtlety of that, too, of um, Jack uh, shines himself. Right. You know, um, and yeah, it's never outright be, stated. He wouldn't be seeing half the stuff if he didn't. Um, right. Rebecca DeMornay sees some stuff, but it's not until things are get getting real bad. Well, they get, and yeah, they get real the enough. Power is, yeah. The power is coming coming in. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so he shines some. Danny is, you know, a firecracker, as they say. Sure. Um, yeah, his midichlor his midichlorian <laughs> counts like way over the top. You know, yeah. he's a, he's a better child. Played a better child character than Anakin. I'll That's say that. true. I didn't want to pl- place that on the actor because I thought you know George Lucas is a terrible director in that. But um, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Jake. The Lloyd. thing, but, I, the um, thing I didn't understand this time is how Dick Halloran could stand being there. In the first place. Well, well, Dick, uh, Dick Halloran again says like he he has the shining, right? But I think the idea, and, and I I thought about this too, and I I uh, and it's a great little bit where later on when he's called back, right? And we see him mum, kind of mumbling to himself, "I never should have done it. Never should have left him there. Right. Should have told him more. Right. You know, should have warned them more." Where uh, I think what Halloran is saying is it, to Danny at the beginning is how Halloran stands it, right? Where Halloran says. Yeah, I see some things sometimes, uh, but they're just pictures of the book. They can't hurt you, right? Because Halloran, Halloran's not that powerful. Yeah, do you think it's a matter that he's not powerful enough, or do you think that? Because uh, I kind of was like, maybe it's that, or maybe like he told himself that he's like the cork on the bottle, like he's he's helping to keep things you know stable and calm. Where you know maybe he thinks he's dampening it down a little bit. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that, that would be a way to look at right. it. Uh, the way I looked at it was that Halloran is telling Danny what works for him. Right. Uh, and then, but when he, then D- Danny calls him, he says it, it, he kind of immediately realized it was never enough. Right. Uh, Danny was going to be way harder hit than Halloran would ever be. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's to a degree. I think, sh- uh, I think, uh, I think Jack's probably stronger than him. Although you could make the argument it's because Danny and Jack are there at the same time. So I guess the so I think, guess the answer to the question Jack was stronger than Dick. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, that's uh, maybe. Okay. Then I immediately was like, well, uh, or it's impossible to tell because I mean, Danny's the conduit for all of this. He's you know, right? He's he's making Jack stronger in certain points. He's making the hotel stronger in certain points. They're feeding off him, you yeah. know, a lot. And this watch through, you know, I I, I really noticed that. Um, I don't know if you read Doctor Sleep or watched the movie. I know you watched the movie, but uh, I watched part. I watched part oh, of it. Okay. I fell asleep, but yeah, great movie by the way. Um, uh, yeah, I want to finish yeah. it. I, I just I passed out before I. Finished Originally, it. when I read the book and when I watched the movie, I'm like, why did they pick psychic vampires? What, 
what the fuck is that all about? Sure. And then when I'm watching this version of it, I'm like, oh, well, this hotel is a psychic vampire. Yeah. That's why they're doing this. You know, it's it, it fits thematically with the later work, which I really isn't part and parcel to this thing. But yeah. No. Because the hotel no. is feeding off Danny and making itself more real through him. Right. And that's what I think what I would ultimately land on is that like Halloran was probably the only guy with with enough shining to make any difference. Right. Um, and, um, and but Danny comes in and makes the overlook more powerful. And therefore, it's able to latch on to Jack's latent ability right. um, and therefore uh, and and then screw with him. Right. Um, and, and prey on his insecurities. Let me ask you, do you think, uh, do you think his dad talking through the radio, was that, uh, the hotel fucking with him or was that actually shining to his dad somewhere? I, I never understood. And they said this on the commentary. They kept saying like, you know, the question of whether or not what's real and right. what's in Jack's mind, uh, that doesn't occur to me whatsoever in this miniseries. I don't know why yeah. they keep saying it. I think it's all the ghosts. Uh, the Overlook itself is a living thing. It's it's a, an evil, malevolent force right. by itself. But I'm saying, do you think it was pretending to be his dad, or do you think it actually somehow oh, found up his dad? Uh, oh no, I think it was pretending yeah. to be his dad. That was that yeah. was my takeaway as well. Yeah, I think I think everything is the Overlook directly trying to. Right. It 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 gets inside his head. I, and yeah, who I, he is I think his dad. I think his dad coming through the radio was them just twisting himself back on himself. You know. Yes. And yeah. feeding what he wants to hear, what he thinks he's going to hear. Yeah. And because I think that uh, so often in that in this show, there's these moments where Jack starts to sort of pull himself out. Right. And then they mind wipe him. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and do it again and to the point where he actually like doesn't even remember smashing the CV radio. And I think that would probably be the idea. I think, yeah, they, they definitely were imitating his father to get him to smash the radio. Right. Uh, they want you to smash the radio. So what do we do? We we bring him the person he hates the most, right? And and brings him back to that helplessness in his childhood, and he's going to respond angrily, right? Because that's all Jack Torrance yeah, knows. This hotel now, is deep smart. Down. Is smart as hell in this thing because it knows yes. exactly how to play everybody against each other. And mm-hmm. you know, even that scene with his father on the radio, it's like, yeah, this is the person he most fears and most fears yeah. becoming. But at the same yeah. time, what is he telling him? He's like that fucking kid of yours. Yeah, you need yeah. to put a stop to him. You know, so yeah, it's oh, oof. Yeah, yeah. Your damn, your damn little pup. You're right. Yeah. Um. Very weird. Uh. Statement. That's a very uh, Stephen I mean, King thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and I, 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 people have said this before. You know, does King have a tin ear for dialogue? I think you he know? just has to. I don't think he does. I, I think he no. just. I like the way his dialogue is. It may not be perfect for the way people talk. Yeah. But it. It works for what he's trying to do and, you know, the picture he's trying to paint. Yeah, a lot of them do talk in, you know, Midwestern aphorisms that you might have never heard or he might just yeah. be making up on the fly. Yeah. But I never really worry too much about the actual, you know, every word of the dialogue as much as the feeling and what it's conveying sure. and how well it's doing it. So I've never had a problem with, with his dialogue, really. Very, very rarely. Yeah. yeah. There's I a couple mean, of points, uh, you know. Yeah, and I was gonna say in this one, like stuff like you know, damn little pop. I'm like, mm, I don't feel like that rolls. A lot of people call people, you know, little whelps, and that's kind of yeah. the same thing. But yeah, I guess so. That one never yeah. bothered me. There was a non sequitur he said to Pat Hangle that I can't remember, and I did write it down, but uh, that one was a little bit much. But I can't remember what it was. Yeah, the pup one didn't bother me because it's 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 dehumanizing towards Danny, and it's you know, making sure. him smaller and making him you know. 
be seen as you know an annoyance that pisses on the rug, and that's right. That's what he was going for with it. So there sure, go. sure. Can we talk about how freaking scary uh, Stephen Weber? Uh, first of all, what how he was in that vision that Daddy had, where he had the corpse makeup on. Absolutely, yeah. Holy crap! Yeah, he's very scary looking. Yeah, that was some great makeup effects, and yes. uh, just how intense and terrifying you know he is at the end. I mean, just yeah. Oof. You know, we're watching a TV movie that we know is a TV movie in the age you know where TV movies had to have standards and practices. Yeah, but yep. I'm still on the edge of my seat, going, "Oh my God, he's going to bash her brains in with that mallet, and we're going to see it, and it's going to be awful, and we're going to hear a wet, sickening yep. crunch." And you know, yeah. And we get a little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she gets hit in the leg uh, pretty good, but I mean, like, they really sell sold it to where, yeah, in one part of your head, you know, you're not going to see much of anything for being TV, but at the same time, you're like, right. maybe they are. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, uh, this I think this gets about as intense as you probably could get mm-hmm. in uh, uh, in 1997 on television. Definitely. Um, and again, we got, again, uh, uh, you know, Mick Garris being this uh, this sort of TV right. guru, right? For so many years, um, you have to remember that this comes before you know American Horror Story. This comes before right. Scream. You know, a lot of that stuff. This, this uh, comes that, right at the beginning of, you know, when South Park just started running and they started to push, yeah. you know, the envelope of what you can show even on cable television. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. this is and this was This was network. This was ABC. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This was this was big. Uh, this was uh, basic cable. Um, you get this with your bunny ears. Right. So this is, you know, goes back to, you know, they they know what they're doing well enough to craft such a wonderful story through such a small window of, you know, how they can do it. Yeah, uh, and that's you know very impressive. I mean, yes, yeah. Uh, and this is a and this is an exceptionally well directed piece. Oh, it's yeah. so it's so controlled, right. um, and, and so specific. And that's why I think it's such it a shame that it's you know kind of an also ran. You know, everybody yeah. wants to talk about the Kubrick, and even I can't you know help myself but talk about yeah. it a little. Yeah, this is a whole However, other animal that I think is every bit as impressive. However, I, f- I f- do feel like this particular miniseries, this version of The Shining, mm-hmm. does get brought up. I-, I think I shared on Facebook at one point, like, I'm watching The Shining. Right. And somebody immediately said, like, you know, full confession, I like this one better than Kubrick's. Right. And I feel like I keep hearing that right. on social media, but it's like that whisper that nobody wants to say, right. wants to shout, so just, shout it just out. Just say it, man. This The Shining miniseries is great. I mean, yeah. <laughs> just say it. And, like, people, yeah. And, and like, you yeah, know what? People... If you're like me and you're indecisive, you don't have to choose. That's the true. Shining is still one of my top ten favorite films of all time because, as a film, this is a better adaptation of the story. Though, this is a great yes. story and a great yes. version of the story, and you should see it if you haven't. And you should see it with clear eyes, not thinking yeah. about Kubrick at all. <laughs> not not thinking about Kubrick at all. Yeah, I mean, or, or if you are going to think about Kubrick, uh, think maybe maybe you'd have to try to come in with a negative attitude towards Kubrick. Right, I think. and that's. But um, because uh, yeah, you know, Mick Garris didn't have to, you know, uh, terrorize his actress to get a good performance out of her. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, in fact, it sounds like Mick Garris, as usual, has a great relationship with everybody on set. Right. Um, and uh, but yeah, uh, Stephen Weber's overall performance as Jack, I think, is is just so much better than Jack Nicholson's, in the sense that he projects a character with depth, right, and 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 feeling. And we like him, yeah. and uh, and we're and and he sets up uh, so many wonderful moments right. 
of him turning on a dime or and also of that progression. And they mentioned on the commentary that everything shot out of sequence, so he had to sort of just turn that on and off. Yeah. And that takes throughout that, that takes a lot of a lot of skill and a lot of know how to, yeah. to pull off right. Yeah. And Weber, uh, he again we talked about you mentioned at the beginning he was on wings. Right. You know, he was a comedy actor. Yeah. Um and uh, he then go he goes on to do a few more horror films over time. Uh, he recently was in uh, it was a small role. A in, couple of uh, them with Garris, aren't they? <laughs> yes, actually, he does work with Garris a couple more times. Nice. Um, and uh, but yes, he does. Uh, he most recently, I think, he did The Perfectionist mm-hmm. on Netflix. The um, he's in that. But yeah, uh, but he's a really really excellent actor. And um, and they say that you know if you could do comedy, you could do anything. Right. Um, but yeah, he just gives, uh, just such a stunning performance and, and, and projects a character that I think is, is yeah. so very well drawn, right. uh, versus well, like, I said, like of... I said, you know, they, uh, him and Rebecca De Mornay and, uh, Cortland, Cortland Mead, you know, they, they all, uh, they all did such a performance where I would have been fine watch, watching a movie of just them being happy and playing in the snow. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, he, but, but definitely. And, and De Mornay, I, I mean, she had the hardest job. She, uh, she had a really hard job, right? yeah. Because um, she has the least and, to, to really sink her teeth into, I think. That's true. I, I agree. I agree. She does some really great work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, one of the things I would say, if there's a criticism, that like, Wendy as a character on the page mm-hmm. uh, is a little bit lacking. Right. Uh, her, her motivations, why she does some things, it's sort of not really clear. Like she kind of like there's a whole scene I think at the beginning of part three where she's sort of like wandering around the hotel and we don't really know why. Right. She just like sort of got out of bed and walks around, and it's like and then she finds stuff and it's it's obviously meant to set up that you know she's starting to see what the hotel's seeing, but we don't really know why she's out there. Yeah. Like you know she just leaves her son alone and and that that keeps happening. Like she's like I'm just gonna let my kid wander off. Right. Um, and, and especially after the fact, when she believes, I kind of, I, like, I kind of thought they were going for it. And I know that I know that part you're talking about, where is the way that the hotel can affect her is really only when she's asleep at that point. Okay, um, that's how I kind of took it. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't very clear. It wasn't very you know defined as to what what she was doing or why in that in that section and a lot of other places. Yeah. But I think that she, I mean, she gives a great performance. Right. Um, and uh, despite, I think, some of the lacking material she's got to work with for her character. I mean, they still painted her as a way better character as, than in, you know, the movie. So. In, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, they, I, but yes, uh, we're starting to run low on time. Right. Um, so uh, final thoughts on uh, The Shining, Stephen King's The Shining. Love it. That's good. Yeah. Great. Um, like I said, the only things, you know, I would really change about it is, you know, to make it to the specifications of television today with a bigger budget, sure. uh, more room to breathe on, on the on the violence and, you know, thematic elements. And other yeah. than that, you know, if, you, if you're silly enough to have not seen it by now, just go do it. It's worth your time. Yeah, it's definitely worth the time. It's, it's a really excellent, excellent piece. Um, and, uh, yeah, same for me. I absolutely, uh, absolutely love this film. Um, loves this miniseries, and uh, it's a it's such a great. I almost kind of wish that we had done, we had done these Garris movies in order, mm-hmm. um, but uh, too late for that now. Right. But um, but uh, I think it's an excellent piece of work, and I actually do feel like it's Mick Garris's best work that I've ever seen. I think that he does a, a really exceptional job with this particular film. 
I mean, my favorite is still the stand, but we'll see how we right how how we feel after I do a few more of these. You know where it stands. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah. So uh, I guess that kind of wraps us up. Right. Um, uh, so thank you for listening. If you're out there, give us a listen. Uh, if you haven't seen this miniseries, go out and check it out. Uh, unfortunately, it's not streaming anywhere. Right. Um, I think we both had to buy it, didn't we? Did uh, you buy it? Oh, I've had, I've had. You've had it. Years, yeah. You've had it. Uh, I had to buy. It. I used to have it. I think I, right. I bought it again for this for this podcast. But it's worth it. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I believe it probably is rentable on Prime, um, but it's absolutely worth it. It's really, really great. It's a really great place of Mick Garris. Uh, so that uh, pretty much wraps up our first week of Mick Garris Appreciation Month. Um, and uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this. Hopefully you got something out of it. Um, again, my name is Nathaniel. And I'm Samuel. Remember to and, stay uh, positive, stay constructive, mm-hmm. do it with love. And, uh, and love yourself, love your fellow horror fans, and be nice to each other. Uh, so thank you very much. Stay safe. Uh, stay safe. And uh, we'll see you down the road. Thank you very much. Good night. Namaste. Dancing with the devil, oh, the sassy devil, dancing at the devil's door.